Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. As for you, my fine friend, you're a victim of disorganized thinking. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. We want some money, Lobotsky. Yeah. Otherwise we kill the girl. Yeah. It seems you have forgotten our little deal, Lobotsky. You don't have the fucking girl, dipshit. We know you never did. Are these the Nazis, Walter? No, Donnie. These men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. We don't care. We still want the money, Lepofsky. We fuck you up. Fuck you. Fuck the three of you. No. Without a hostage, there is no ransom. That's what ransom is. Those are the fucking rules. His girlfriend gave up her toll. She thought we'd been getting million dollars. It's not fair. Fair? Who's the fucking nihilist around here, you bunch of fucking crybabies? All right. Today's episode, as you can tell from that clip, is... About uh, Germans. No, it's about cultural and moral diversity. What's the connection between that clip and cultural and moral diversity? Well, I think the connection is, aside from just playing a great movie um, and talking about a great topic... (laughs) That's a... The connection is, to me, that when you're faced with people who believe just a bunch of really weird things uh, that that seem wrong, uh, then then it, it really is like you feel like throwing your hands up and saying, well, maybe there is no such thing as moral truth. I mean... What are some examples of, of some really weird cultural beliefs? One of the classic examples that people um, often use are the Eskimos who practice infanticide, and this is James Rachels talks about this, on, infant, on their infant daughters. Not all the infant daughters, but some of the infant daughters, and to a far greater percentage than their infant sons. Now, this would be something that we would find to be abhorrent horrific right we both have daughters after all we both have daughters and uh speaking for myself never once considered infanticide in fact it was the opposite uh it was something to cherish as soon as soon as she popped out so uh seems like a callous moral individual who would be able to throw away a child other examples, of course, that are that are more well known right now are the practice of genital mutilation on females, and the idea that that is not just something that's permissible, but something that's obligatory. Um, in many Muslim cultures, they wear um, burqas, 
um, that cover themselves in black from head to toe, many of, uh, and often uh, in, in countries that are extremely hot. So <laughs> that's the biggest sin, really. It does. Like, you know, if, if they lived in the North Pole, it would be almost understandable. <laughs> so, um, so then the question becomes: uh, I don't think anybody denies that there are radically different moral practices across cultures. There, there's there's now two interesting questions that arise from that fact. One: whether these differences are fundamental. Um, or fundamentally moral. What do I mean by that? Well, like so, so it could be that that in fact uh, there there are facts that we're unaware of. That, for instance, female children born to Eskimos are much more likely to drain the resources of a family, and everybody will the males suffer. That, that 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 hunt. Right, right. And, and so you you have to keep some you know somehow you have to keep the percentage of females down because or else more harm will come to everybody. And so it turns out that they're actually acting mercifully, and so it could be that we just have the facts wrong. We just we didn't bother to delve deeply into the case. Like uh, other examples could include that there are there are some supernatural beliefs that everybody adheres to that that in fact they think that uh, that would bring real harm to the population. You could disagree about whether those are the case, but the, those facts are true. But um, it's a misunderstanding, basically. Right. So, for example, I, I think there was a certain culture that threw, uh, that sacrificed children into a river. And right. the reason they did it is because they thought that there was some hippopotamus god or something like that. Right. And well, are you saying that the hippopotamus god isn't, doesn't exist? I'm yeah, not. I'm not taking a stand on that at all. You must be Jewish. But the, <laughs> <laughs> we were taught that there was only one god and that the, that yeah, god was not a hippopotamus. Uh, although he has some hippopotamus-like qualities. Um, if you look at some of the pictures, it's a sort of roundish belly. But anyway, the the general idea is if there weren't, if they did not sacrifice a certain percentage of children to this hippopotamus god, the, the hippopotamus god would destroy the whole village. Now, if we lived somewhere where that were actually true and we actually believed it, then uh, it's arguable that uh, that would be something that that's the right thing to do. But both in that case and the Eskimo case, fundamentally the attitudes towards children uh, are the same, or at least this is what people like James Rachel argue. It's not that they don't love their children or don't think that they should take care of their children. It's under these circumstances you have to do what would otherwise seem horrific and abhorrent, as you said. So that so that's the first uh, que- interesting question, is how deep do these differences, do these cultural differences in values and, 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 and norms, how deep do they run? How fundamental are they? Um, what's, an, what's the other big question? So it could be, then, that, uh, that in fact those differences really aren't even fundamental, that, that in fact they do value children less, uh, or innocence or youth, or, or women, or gay people, or whatever, that there really is a core moral difference. And so that, uh, on the one hand, you, you hope that you, if you convince them that the hippopotamus god did not want them to sacrifice their infants, they would be relieved and say, oh good, we hate killing our children. But on the other hand, there could be a population of people who says, well, I mean, they're just children. Who, who cares? I mean, don't you eat chickens? Uh, we sort of eat children. I mean, they're both tasty. 
right? Right. Uh, so, right. Uh, uh, cannibalistic cultures, right. for example. Or uh, another example of something that may seem more fundamental are atti- different attitudes towards our outsiders. There are right. certain cultures that just do, don't value people outside of their immediate group right. or immediate like, culture. When they say don't kill, they mean don't kill one of us. Right. No, not and me. there's no facts that they're getting wrong. There's nothing that, right. uh, there's nothing that they're missing. So that would arguably... Um, at least be a fundamental moral difference. And then the question is, given that there's a fundamental moral difference, uh, is there an objective fact of the matter about who's right and who's wrong? Is there an objective... Imagine that the general mutilation difference is a fundamental difference. Then the question is, is there a fact of the matter about whether that practice should be permissible or, or, or should not be permissible? Right, and, and I think that, that here, you know, a, a lot of times what we really want is, is to answer the question, you know, if two reasonable people or two groups of reasonable people sit down, can they come to some sort of agreement? Not agreement through trickery or, or slick arguments, but agreement, like, if we had a difference about a math problem, we could actually sit down and, and go through the steps and say, oh, you're right, I made a mistake there. Is there a possibility in the moral domain? Right. Uh, let's talk about some misconceptions, unless you have anything to add. To yeah, that. no, I, I mean, I was going to say that, that there's also logic and reason, and I think that that's, it's, it's good to point out that, you know, reasonable people can, can uh, sit down and, and go through the steps of just pure reasoning and and often resolve some sort of disagreement because they realize that there was a, oh you're right there was a flaw in my reasoning like i this this was a case of me sort of arguing from a slippery slope and that's not a good thing to do or something like that and and if there is agreement about the norms exactly. certain norms of reasoning which right which some people have argued that there is not that's right yeah right. Uh, so but yeah so i think that well, let, let me maybe start with a with an observation that you and i have probably had um, well, first of all, this kind of concern is a fairly new one to modern human beings because it used to be the case that you could live your entire life in the same town and never really encounter people with odd moral beliefs like that were radically different from yours. And so now, though, you, you know, if you haven't encountered it by the time you go to college, by the time you're a sophomore in college and you're taking one of our courses... And uh, you start really deeply thinking about whether or not there are these moral differences are, you know, what they mean. It's really easy to just throw your hands up and uh, become, as, as the Germans in the Big Lebowski, nihilists. And so what even not... Yeah, what is not what is nihilism aside from being German and listening to techno music? Uh, <laughs> I think it's mostly that, but <laughs> no, I mean this is exactly the common reaction that you sometimes get with students, and not just students. I mean, right. uh, I think this is a, a, a common and somewhat infuriating uh, response to relativism among. Uh, political candidates, pundits, and even some philosophers and scientists, the idea that if there is no objective moral truth about at least most moral debates, then it's then everybody's opinion is as good as everybody uh, as, as everybody else's, and that and, and that does not follow at all. Uh, an analogy might be: Look, uh, maybe there's no fundamental aesthetic truth about you know what type of music is most beautiful 
what's the best kind of movie? What's the best novel? And certain cultures uh, and certain individuals uh, have difference have differences of opinion, different tastes, and uh, and it's at least arguable, and I would say plausible that there is no fundamental objective truth about what the best novel is or what the best. Uh, Didn't you just say the Big Lebowski is like? One of the best movies of all time. Is, is this not an objective I, claim? I, yeah, that might be the exception here. <laughs> but uh, but 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 saying that doesn't mean that you can't that that any opinion is as good as anybody else's. So the Chinatown or uh, the Godfather or Citizen Kane or the, the amazing South Korean movies, uh, Old Boy, the Chanwoo Park movies, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. These we can still say, and I think with some confidence. Uh, are you Jesse Prince now? I, I, that they are better. <laughs> what do you mean, what am I, Jesse Prince? <laughs> Jesse how, Prince am I, uh, how am I being a, Jesse a, Prince? A colleague of ours who just drops uh, c- c- cinema uh, names okay. uh, to, to sound... I'm sorry. <laughs> the Godfather, Chinatown, Chanwook Park, uh, Vengeance Trilogy. Uh, that's not that's not name dropping. I'll do some name dropping later on about movies especially. Uh, Fair enough. But uh, but there are still standards by which we can say that those movies, apparently none of which Dave has ever seen, uh, are better than, say, I don't know, Ernest Goes to Camp. That's a bad example. Uh, or uh, even movies that are from the that same Pauly kind Shore of... What was that Shore movie? Uh, the one where he kept the, 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 the caveman one? No. And then there was also that... Uh, the. Uh, um, that movie where they're enclosed in the bubble, the the, the standalone ecosystem bubble. What's it called? Uh, biosphere. That biosphere movie. Remember that? <laughs> terrible. Oh, cloud. Just or, beautifully uh, terrible. Oh. I may have made it more controversial, but uh, we played a clip from Few but Good Men. That movie sucks. <laughs> if you watch that movie, that movie's terrible. And I and I and I and I'll, I'll name drop again. I hated Aaron Sorkin before it was cool to hate Aaron Sorkin. Now everybody hates him because of Newsroom. But I, uh, but I hate him now. But I mean, look. My point is that if you know a lot about films and you know the way they're put together and you know the structure and you know and uh, right. there, I mean, there's a reason fundamentally that, that Citizen Kane is on the top ten list of every film critic out there, right? There, presumably, there's some agreement about uh, about both the value, the structure, the composition, the plot, the cinematography. Um, it's not impossible to find some source of agreement. So, so saying that there's no objective truth about what the ten best movies actually are isn't the same as saying, well, then, it, it just, whatever your opinion is, if you like that Polly Shore movie... Or if you like A Few Good Men, or if you think the best movie of all time is... Uh, How about Glitter? What's Glitter? The Mariah Carey movie. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. if you think that's the best movie of all time, like if my daughter uh, <laughs> might do that and then get kicked out of the house, right, right. then uh, then you're just wrong. I mean, you're, you're wrong because you're just too inexperienced. And you'll, right. But it's the same kind of thing. You'll realize later on, if you ever get a kind of, of education in film uh, and how it works, uh, you will come to recognize that. That's sort of, the, I guess, the implicit claim you're making when you're, when you're saying that there are standards by which we can judge. And I'm sure that's true of classical music, even though I know nothing about what those standards are, or opera, uh, etc., or even abstract art. So, 
the same applies for morality, right? Uh, that that there are ways to be more or less educated in areas of moral values, and the just by saying there's no objective moral tr- truth about certain issues doesn't mean that everybody's opinion is fine. That these nihilists can go around dropping marmots in bathtubs, and that that's uh, totally uh, that we're, we're supposed to just accept it as as just as good as uh, right. Martin Luther King. <laughs> and maybe right. the first time someone's compared the nihilist from Bilgowski dropping yeah. dropping marmots yeah. to, yeah. to the civil rights movement. There's another, I think, confusion uh, when people say, uh, "Well, their beliefs are just as good as yours." And I think that in some cases, what people mean to say is, uh, "Well, we shouldn't be so quick to judge other other cultures." And so, what they're expressing isn't isn't a belief that every morality is equivalent, but rather they're making a, a broader moral claim that uh, we should be tolerant of the differences in belief. Um, and, you, you know, a lot of times when, when students in discussions say this, eh, what they don't, they don't really mean that what Hitler did was fine. What they mean is that uh, we shouldn't be so quick to judge the, you know, the, the fact that in, in China people eat dogs. Because that's a, just a different culture, and we should be tolerant of those kinds of differences. Um, that's, by the way, something I can't support. Like, the, that might be the ultimate test case. The, the eating dogs? Yeah, you don't eat uh, You dogs. eat every other... Because dogs actually have a uh, like better are, moral status than any other. Yeah, than any other animal and us. <laughs> <laughs> Building on that point that, that Dave just made, so the this is also a misconception of people arguing against relativism is they think they're committed to the claim that you have to be tolerant of every other practice. And then they, as if they just caught the relativist in an inconsistency that the relativist never uh, never thought of themselves, they say, but you're saying that everybody should be tolerant of other practices, and that's a universal claim. And right. so you're not a relativist after all, and you're uh, and, and you're contradicting yourself. Well, but no, the relativist isn't making that claim. And right. and somebody could be a relativist and think, no, I don't have to tolerate other practices. Um, I'm going to, uh, I, I, you know, if I was in World War II and I was a relativist, I'd still go in and do everything that I could to defeat the Nazis. Even if I thought there's no objective moral truth, that doesn't commit me to any kind of attitude towards the practices of, of other people. And and and, the, and once that misconception is cleared up, at the very least, ethical relativism, which we'll use as the term to call uh, that there is no objective set of moral truths, ethical relativism re- relativism is at the very least consistent. It's internally coherent. Right. Right. Um, so maybe then we should talk in the next segment about what we actually do know about uh, about these moral differences and the psychologists have taken a bit more to studying at least to cataloging maybe the differences across cultures and the reasons for these differences Jewish? No, I ain't Jewish. I just don't dig on swine, that's all. Why not? 
pigs are filthy animals. I don't eat filthy animals. Yeah, but bacon tastes good. Pork chops taste good. Hey, sewer rat may taste like pumpkin pie, but I'd never know because I wouldn't eat the filthy motherfuckers. <laughs> pigs sleep and root and shit. That's a filthy animal. I ain't eating nothing ain't got sense enough to disregard its own feces. How about a dog? Dog eats his own feces. I don't eat dog either. Yeah, but do you consider a dog to be a filthy animal? I wouldn't go so far as to call a dog filthy, but they're definitely dirty. But dogs got personality. Personality goes the wrong way. Uh, so by that rationale, if a pig had a better personality, he'd cease to be a filthy animal. Is that true? Well, we have to be talking about one charming motherfucking pig. <laughs> I mean, he had to be ten times more charming than that arm on Green Acres, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we have, I think, actually a much more relevant clip. Uh... Leading into our second segment here, uh, for a couple of reasons. First, because here we have two people trying to rationally resolve an ethical disagreement, right? You, it's as close to philosophers as you get in movies. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, good movies. And so, uh, this, and this is what the question of ethical relativism, I think almost everybody on all sides of the debate, not, not every philosopher, uh, but what most philosophers agree that, that, that what it boils down to is whether ethical disagreement, in this case whether it's okay to eat pigs, uh, can be rationally resolved, at least in principle. It doesn't require that the agreement actually happens, but that if everybody knew all the information and everyone was reasoning properly, they would arrive at the uh, same judgment about whether, say, eating pigs is is morally acceptable. The second reason this is a relevant clip is because I think a lot of people, and, and, and this will lead into some of your work and some of John Haidt's work that we're going to talk about, a lot of people will think that the question of whether pigs are filthy has nothing to do with whether it's moral to eat pigs. We have to think about things like whether they're sentient, whether uh, they can feel pain, whether they suffer or not on factory farms, say. But whether they're in their everyday lives filthy or not would seem to be something that a lot of people, including Vincent, considers to be completely irrelevant to whether it's okay to eat them. Right. And so here's a possibility, and this is pointed out by John Haidt and Jesse Graham and, and uh, other psychologists working on what they call moral foundations theory, uh, that, that maybe it's not that, uh, you know, what if you can't just resolve this through, through sort of uh, reasonable conversation and, and pointing out some and, of the facts? And learning out more facts, uh, yeah. Right. Uh, what if it really is the case that there is a different principle at work here, a different foundation for the morality of, uh, in this case, Samuel Jackson's, Jackson's character. And uh, maybe purity, what, what Haidt and Schwader uh, and other psychologists have pointed out, seems to be a pillar of some moral codes. What if that is sort of the foundational uh, principle that's at work for this kind of moral argument? That, that it's... Uh, what they can't agree on is whether purity is important for morality. Whether it's ethically relevant. Whether it's ethically relevant. And what Hyde and others have pointed out is that, that for, at least for Western liberals, the, the, the kind of people that we, you know, that we are because of where we were born and raised, morality and ethics is about justice and harm and fairness. And all that other stuff 
is is sort of irrelevant, right? It's not an ethical question. So let's get a little more specific. So what are the five, I think now six foundations? He keeps adding to them, right? It started out as three, I think, with with, With uh, with Richard Schwader. And then uh, then Hyatt expanded to five, uh, first four, uh, when I interviewed him. Right. Name drop. Uh, <laughs> he, he, it, was, it, it was at four. Later, it was at five, I think, in the happiness hypothesis. Now it's six. But let's go through right, let's, what they are. Let's, uh, the, the five has been the sort of longest-lasting list. So uh, you have the, the ones that, that Western notions are built on, sort of justice and fairness. Um, har- sorry, harm and fairness. But harm, but those are separate those are foundations, two foundations, right? right so you shouldn't right. harm other people is one foundation, right? Uh, you uh, fairness, uh, equality, yeah. how, how we treat people uh, right. should be equal, right? Um, and rights, I think, is in that category too, correct? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you have these other three that that are a, a bit more foreign to to maybe Western liberals, but that are actually much more common to the world. Uh, so you have purity; you should be clean in body and soul, right? And so, so that that there is a way of polluting yourself that should be avoided. Sometimes this is very tied to concepts of uh, di- sort of divine belief, divine commands, but not always. But right? not always. So there are there are definitely people who, who, for instance, think that certain sexual acts should be avoided and, and in fact are wrong, even if nobody's harmed and both parties agree to it because they're just in fact just so gross that you're somehow fouling up yourself. So in fact, right, this is one of the arguments that people will use uh, for homosexuality, right? right they right. will say that that is disgusting and unnatural and right. impure, and uh, the, to the liberal, that idea is offensive because it's 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 not something that should matter that even if they find the actual homosexual uh practice or act to be disgusting viscerally that that should have played no role in the question of whether uh, we find it to be ethically permissible right right. um all right so what are some of the the other two foundations uh then you have uh authority Right, the importance of authority, so that that there is an inherent moral good to the the chain of command. Right, that that uh, the, there's a hierarchy in society, and that is it is good to know the role that you play in this hierarchy to respect those who are of higher authority, um, to and, obey those who are higher authority. And again, I do, just to emphasize one word that you use there, inherent, that it is an inherent or intrinsic good, because I think that often. Uh, it's 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 good from the point of view of harm right. to uh, obey authority that that will lead the, to the best utilitarian result. It will lead to the minimal amount of suffering or the greatest amount of happiness. But uh, but, but the, in this foundation, it's actually an intrinsic good that even if there is no benefit from for the harm or fairness, that it's still good on its own right. to obey authority, and, to obey hierarchy. And this this actually is, is a matter of some debate currently in, in uh, moral psychology, which is, uh, you know, to what extent are any of these actually tied back to beliefs about harm? And to to what extent are they? Sorry, it's itching. What do you want me to do? <laughs> um, uh, we, we just had a little moment of purity and impurity. <laughs> um, to what extent beliefs about it? Doesn't hurt anybody. <laughs> me scratching my balls. <laughs> it's hurting my eyes. <laughs> so they're bleeding currently. Uh, so 
to what extent actually the, the psychology is actually tied back to harm. So actually, so, give the example that you give to yeah, your so, students on so, this. So the example, that, one of the examples that John Haidt came up with, which I actually pulls my intuition uh, very well, is uh, suppose that you are in a play with your father. Um, and in in this play, you happen to be portraying a role in which uh, your character slaps your father's character in the face. Uh, to what extent do you think that this would be morally permissible to do? That is, slap your father in the face for the sake of making a good play. And your father agrees to it. Your father right? agrees to it. There's no... There's you no could make some money, maybe. Yeah, and, yeah. and in fact, right. the, it would be a, a much better play if you put your heart and soul into it. Right. And, uh, and uh, laid into it. Right. It's that. I find this idea... Uh, just objectionable. I, like, I can't even picture uh, agreeing to do a play where I would have to slap my father in the face. Um, and it's it's sort of, if I have to introspect here, which is you know the best kind of psychology. Uh, it it really is the case that that it, it feels disrespectful to to my father and the role that he plays in my life. Um, it's just a matter of respect, even though even if you know. He put Novocaine on his face temporarily, and I knew it wasn't even going to bring him any pain. Right. And you ma- and you can imagine a Western liberal, and I'll play that role for right now, saying, "No, no, no!" But you don't understand. He's agreed to it. It's part of the play, and it's just uh, you know that it's going to make the play better, and it's going to make you guys a little bit uh, of money, and it's going to give right. enjoyment to all the people in the audience to really see you slap your father. So, so what do you mean that? How, how can how can there be anything wrong with that? Right, and and here's where I say no, no, no. It's not it's not as if I don't understand those things. I'm not an idiot. I'm I. It's there are no facts that we're disagreeing on. Um, what we're disagreeing on is a fundamental value that that it's a sign of disrespect to raise my hand to my father, and that that should be something that's honored. Right, and that should yeah. be something that's honored. So so you know. Despite being raised most of my life in the in the United States, I think that that, that this might be a, a, a one of those cultural differences that I still feel. So, and then the 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 final uh, uh, the final foundation is the is group loyalty, loyalty and collective. Right, yeah, right. So, so some loyalty to the group. It is a virtue to to actually do things to promote the good of the group, but that it's not again not simply a matter of of. Uh, utilitarian good, but actually a, a virtue in and of itself to act for the good of the group. And, and 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 it's not that any of these things can't be overridden. Right? I assume you would slap your father in the in the face for a play if that would somehow save your daughter's life right. or something like right, that. Right. The idea is that it has some sort of independent, intrinsic value of not doing it. But like all independent, intrinsic values, they can be overridden for some greater value. Right. Uh, you know, an example of the group loyalty or, group, or, or collective uh, identification may be another way of, of describing it. I lead off my book with this. Uh, after the massacre at Virginia Tech, a lot of Koreans felt responsible for what happened. Koreans who had nothing to do with this guy who was the assassin. And so they actually felt some sort of... Uh, collective shame, collective shame about it, right? Yeah. And I and I remember there's a great NPR interview where the where someone's interviewing somebody about it on I think the NPR program Day to Day. And first of all, it's, it's very hard for they're, they're in Los Angeles. This thing happened in in Virginia. They can't even find somebody. Nobody will agree to be interviewed until she finally finds somebody. 
and he says, you know, we're we're so sorry, we're so ashamed, and she acts very incredulous. She says, well, but you had nothing to do with this. What what do you have to apologize for? What do you have to be ashamed of? And I think right there you have a kind of an interesting fundamental disagreement about the extent to which uh, you uh, you have to apologize or you feel responsible for something that you had absolutely no involvement in right and this this you know this also points to to uh, uh, something we touched on our in our last episode about these an, an expanded view of responsibility and and blame here because obviously it's not as if every every Korean person says like no let me serve the time for for uh, you know having committed mass murder nor do they feel like they actually committed the murder right right but but in but there is a collective sense of responsibility that I think it makes sense to to use that that term right it's just and a collective you know to bring it to obligation to to uh, bring the question to obligation there's a collective uh, there's a sense that they owe an apology and they would probably would be willing to contribute to uh, for some sort of compensation for it this reminds me a little bit of your study that you did uh, and, and and the other thing that i think this emphasizes is we can all feel that a little bit right and this right? is actually john height's point he yeah. says that look these five or whatever six uh moral foundations are intuitive for all human beings. He calls them the moral equalizer. And he says, look, it's just that different cultures have these different presets, right? That, it, that harm and, and fairness are turned way up for Western liberals, but it's not as if, uh, it's not as if we can't intuit these things. And in fact, uh, it's very easy to get even the most liberal Westerner to have a sense of, of, of purity violations when you give these examples of a brother and sister who engage in sexual intercourse, even though there's absolutely... Unless they're turned on. <laughs> unless they're turned, uh, even in cases where there's absolutely no harm and there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no actual chance that any harm could come about. So I don't know if he's done this analogy or not, but you might imagine that, if, that each of these foundations have a dial that can go from one to ten right and uh and and you know for for western liberals the it's it's up to ten for harm and for fairness and equality and maybe this other foundation oppression which i actually think is relevant to one of your awesome studies that i want to ask you about in a second uh so those are turned up to ten but maybe the purity one is only at one Uh, yeah, that the, is the analogy of the equalizer, right? Yeah. The levels. Right? Is that what he? Yeah. Did? yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's just a question. The disagreement is over emphasis uh, and the degree to which they consider these uh, to be to be rational. I think everybody can feel it to some extent, and may even believe that to a certain extent, a very small extent. There is ethical relevance to all of these, and that's actually what you see when you ask people across the world when you say. Okay, uh, to what extent do you believe this is an important sort of moral consideration? What you see is that harm and fairness, everybody agrees on. So, so this is important for everybody across the world and conservatives and liberals in the United States. The disagreement is about the importance of the other domains. So purity, group, group loyalty, and authority, those tend to be high as well. Always maybe slightly lower than harm and fairness. 
So there, you know, there I, there is some agreement that those are probably the most important, but they tend to be still still high, except for when you look at Western liberals um, who actually have those tuned way down, way way down. Right. And actually, I I think the this new foundation that neither of us are completely sure about because mm-hmm. neither of us have read his brand new book. But um, I saw him give a talk on it, and he talks about uh, oppression being its own foundation, which reminded me of this great study that you did, uh, the New York Philharmonic study. <laughs> yeah, so what we did was we took the classic trolley problem in, in moral philosophy where uh, actually the variation of the trolley problem that's, that's called the footbridge problem, where basically you ask somebody whether it would be morally permissible to throw one person onto train tracks in order to stop a train that was going to kill five more people. Um, and so generally what you see is that people find this morally impermissible. That is just to throw. So the idea is that this guy is large enough, in some cases fat, or just has enough mass that he would actually stop a train and everybody's innocent. Uh, it's just that you sacrifice one innocent person by pushing them to their death in order to save five people. What you usually find is that it stated that way, most people find it morally impermissible or even abhorrent to throw someone to their death just to save five innocent people. We, we upped the stakes a little bit. We made it a larger group t- to maybe pull people's intuition that it might be possible. So we asked individuals whether or not it would be morally permissible to throw one guy onto the train tracks to save 100 individuals. What we manipulated was the name of the one guy, the fat guy, say. And we either said his name for some, – some people read that his name was Chip Ellsworth III. Uh, some people read that his name was Tyrone Payton. So if, if those names don't bring up any associations um, – I think of James Spader in an 80s movie for, for <laughs> Chip, Chip, Chip Ellsworth III. Ellsworth III. Right. So this was intended to bring about these images of, of a, definitely a white guy, probably for a blue blood sort of from a rich background. Tyrone Payton being sort of a stereotypical African-American name, one that would would rise, give rise to those sorts of associations. Um, and uh, so we asked people also whether the 100 people who were being saved were members of uh, the Harlem Jazz Orchestra or the New York Philharmonic, again intending to, to say whether it was essentially whether it was a, uh, are you throwing a black guy to save 100 white people or are you throwing a white guy to save 100 black people? Now, we also measured political orientation. The gist of the results was that for conservatives, it was actually fine to throw the black guy to save the 100 white guys. For liberals, it was actually uh, the other way Was it way better around. to throw the black guy for conservatives? Actually, when you, look at cons- when you look at conservatives, interestingly, it was actually the same. The action was all in the liberal condition. So the liberals thought that it was morally permissible only when it was killing a white guy to save black people. And uh, turns out when you ask people afterwards about this, everybody says, oh, you know, race should never play a role because they only saw one of the conditions. But then when you push them about these, uh, what a lot of liberals will say is that, well, maybe there is a good reason. You know, black people have been oppressed for so long that their life is worth something more. Yeah, so I think this is why, and I, when I saw this, again, and we don't know the details, so we shouldn't talk too much about it, but I think that it, you know, here, 
this isn't just about harm and this isn't just about rights because the harm is the same in both cases uh, and the rights are the same in both cases. Uh, but there's, uh, in addition, this idea that uh, that we cannot contribute to oppression in any way right. and that we should that we are independently obligated to alleviate oppression and you know that particular blacks, guy you know that particular guy we don't know any any of the details of his life, but right. 400 years of oppression slavery right so uh so so that, i thought that was that it's an interesting new foundation that might uh explain cast even more light on on liberal and conservative disagreements because here the conservatives are being the well look the 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 math is the same both right. ways they're being uh they're just going by the harm and fairness right. uh foundations but the liberals seem to be emphasizing or considering something in addition to that to be relevant that's right that's right and then we we were not expecting this result to be honest I, we we like like many social psychologists just assume that the bias would be on the side of conservatives and uh we we were quite surprised but pleasantly Is surprised that true? because yeah absolutely i mean we yeah. thought we thought the bias would be on the side of conservatives um but a, a, as i think is just always the case there's enough bias on both sides let's uh to wrap up this segment let me try to summarize how uh this disagreement between ethical Objectivists or universalists uh, and ethical relativists might be resolved. Uh, people who still want to defend the idea that there are universal moral truths will say that actually, when you really examine it, the foundations all reduce to some shared collective set of principles. Uh, and someone like Haidt and someone like Schwader will say, no, that's not true. These foundations are, they are as deep as, as morality goes. And when there's disagreement about which of them uh, des- is relevant or and how relevant each of these foundations are, there's no getting, there's no resolving that disagreement. Right, and and John Hyde doesn't quite conclude that therefore, therefore, there's no hope at, at finding agreement. I think that that he's he's an optimist about just knowing about these foundations and knowing at least that they they are universally, you know, that we all have intuitions about all five foundations. That just knowing this might at least get us to stop. To stop pointing our fingers and saying, "Well, you you just have absolutely no idea what you're talking about in the world." That no, oh, I can understand that that's a belief that arises out of the purity domain. And again, right? This is this is this takes us back to the other point where just saying that these that there might be irresolvable disagreements at some fundamental level doesn't mean you can't make a lot of progress resolving disagreements. Uh, you know, in the same way that you know, let's say uh, my brother believes that Natty Light is the best beer. (laughs) And I try to explain to him, no, it's just that you haven't been exposed to a lot of different beers. And uh, here, you know, I don't know, uh, Anchor Steam is, or or St. Arnold's, I'll I'll, I'll give a shout out to good Texas beer. That's a much better beer, right? And then I have him try it. I have him try the beer and maybe he comes around to it or maybe he just loves Natty Light and there's no way to resolve it. But there's a lot of 
there's a lot of beer we can, there's a lot of beer we right. can try, a lot of beers we can drink, so, but, a lot of ways you could test you his palate could develop that would allow us to uh, arrive at a, at, a, at, a, at at an agreement on that question and. Even if ultimately there's going to be a, there could be a fundamental level in which we can't agree on what the best beer is, and of course that would apply to movies or wine or or, or novels or or symphonies. Right. So what you're saying is basically we should uh, be we should go around and taste every every sin across the world so that we can at least say which ones are the real right. bad ones. Right. I would think that you should be circumcised as a female. <laughs> Because uh, you might like, and it. I think and that so you should sleep with your sister. I don't have a sister. <laughs> uh, I would love to. All right. Uh, when we come back, uh, maybe for a, a final brief concluding segment, let's carry on this point about what the implications of ethical relativism might be, and what they and what they are. In other words, how we how we would address it. Sounds good. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, so let's get our cards out on the table, first of all, uh, Dave. Are, would you consider yourself to be an ethical relativist? No. You know, I, I'm, I'm... Really? Yeah, no. Uh, no. I Why? Believe, I believe that, that at the end of the day, there's, 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 uh, there is a truth that we just have to convince people about. And, uh, so and, how do you respond to... The, this totally surprised me, so this is great. <laughs> uh, how do you respond to the people like John Haidt and to Schwader uh, that there are these fundamental, that our underlying psychologies uh, lead us to have fundamentally different values? Um, the way that I respond is that I think that, that they, they shouldn't confuse the, the descriptive claim with the normative one, which I think that sometimes they do. Which is that it, it may very well be the case that, and in fact, I've done research on the topic that that purity tends to drive people towards certain kinds of moral beliefs. But I think that uh, upon in like given enough reflection, I still hope and and believe that that there is a way in which uh, we can boil some of this stuff down. To but I agree that you shouldn't automatically conclude from the descriptive claim that there's fundamental disagreement. Uh, to the normative claim that there's no objective fact of the matter, but how do how would we possibly know that there is an objective fact of the matter if there is this fundamental disagreement? Well, what makes you confident? What makes you justified in saying that? Well, there's this little thing called philosophy that uh, I like to practice. Well, where, how, what, <laughs> that's fine, but uh, in philosophy, one of the things we do is we have to actually justify our claims, and so right. that's what I'm asking you how you right well how can, you can I start with saying uh, how do you justify that there is no objective truth well I'm saying the that if there, psychology if there is fund and so we're, we're presuming that there is fundamental we're assuming that something like Heights theory some version of it descriptively is correct right uh, 
So I would conclude from that that there is absolutely no reason, we have no evidence uh, and no reason to think that there's some fact of the matter uh, on the questions where there is this fundamental disagreement. So maybe it's a burden of proof kind of question. But but I guess it's not clear to me why that matters, Uh, why the psychological data matter here. I mean, that's like saying, like, you know, I asked... 10 million people what 2 plus 2 equals and I got 10 different answers and therefore you know it's unclear it's uh, it's no no, that, no. That it's is not like, like the, saying that, that it's on the face of it because uh, that's not a fundamental disagreement we can get everybody to agree that 2 plus 2 actually equals 4 right but I'm talking about a fundamental disagreement so, right? so you're optimistic that if you get those people who got the answer wrong you can show them that in fact 2 plus 2 equals 4 in principle, at least. Right. So right. I think now, that, now, now, look, th- th- let, me give the, let me just further explain, right? Well, but really quickly, I think that this psychological data is akin to an initial 10 million people survey where you saw variability in answers. That it's not akin to actually going and talking to people and getting, getting that sort of attempt at a, agreement on, on the matter. So, but then it seems like what you're disagreeing about is the descriptive claim that there is actual fundamental disagreement. There's fundamental difference in values. Yeah, no, that's I mean, fine. The, the, if that's what you're saying, I get it. Yeah, um, yeah that, that the data have given us a, uh, that we can, we can conclude from the data that there is on the face of it differences. That, that to call them foundations, I think, is not quite what we're allowed to do yet, given the data. So then your confidence that there are objective moral truths is based on your belief, your descriptive belief, then, that, this, that the disagreements are not fundamental. No, 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 no. I, not the descriptive I, I, belief. No, on the descriptive, sorry, the descriptive claim that uh, that ultimately these differences are rationally resolvable. It, you're the cart before the horse. What I believe is that there there is an objective, some sort of objective criteria that we can agree on. That therefore, if we bothered to do the right descriptive studies, we would find that they aren't as foundational as we think they are, given the data that we have. So let's take a disagreement then. Like, well, well let's go back to the. Let's take a disagreement about uh, human slavery. Okay. okay, that was clearly something that was debated, um, and for many for many centuries and millennia, uh, it was accepted that there were that that it was no, nothing bad with having a human slave, um, and so I what I'm saying is that once once people actually were able to understand that the pain and suffering of other people who had intentions and desires just like our own, uh, once that became obvious, there was no room except for to progress morally and actually come to the understanding and realization that this was wrong. And so that's, that's I guess, what I'm saying. With Take, take the, the argument about homosexuality. Yeah, sure, people say it's gross that gay people do that, but I think that with enough time, people will discard that psychological intuition and realize that there, there is actually a, a real principle at stake, that, that, that other people deserve those kinds of rights and, and to not, deserve the right not to be harmed and to live their life um, as, as they want to live so long as they're not bringing harm to anybody else. Well, let's take another example that I think 
uh, women in, say, uh, certain Muslim countries who have been raped, gang raped in some cases, and are then actually punished or these people will throw acid in their faces right. uh, because they've dishonored their family even though they had absolutely obviously nothing to do with uh, with what happened uh, that would be something that that upon uh, yeah, I, serious reflection within these countries and within these cultures that whatever purity norm is driving uh, that kind of practice cannot be uh, cannot actually survive. Yeah, I think that they're considered reflection. Yeah, and and you know I, I don't know about the psychological claim that these people once they reflect will be convinced, but I just think that it's bullshit to fall back on on some claim that that there is a psychological moral foundation that justifies in any way their their belief, and that 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 it's it's just fucking wrong to do that. But, 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 okay, let me play the John Haidt version here, uh, the defense of that. I, I think John Haidt, as a moral pl- pluralist or relativist, can, can say that something like slavery and something like uh, honor killings, uh, especially in cases of rape, but, but uh, arguably even any, not any, right. in any case, right, that uh, there might be fundamental agreement on that just because... Uh, the even upon reflection, people will realize that whatever purity norm is at stake just doesn't outweigh the injustice and the harm that these honor killings cause, right? So it's, it's not that uh, on other cases they would also come to uh, an agreement. It's just that what they would come to an agreement on is that purity uh, doesn't mean that much. But then on other forms of disagreement, so take something like female circumcision or or genital mutilation, and I know Schwader has argued this uh, explicitly, right? He thinks that's not, that wouldn't be an example of that. That would be a case where there's fundamental disagreement and you can further reflect all you want and uh, there's not going to be any kind of rational judgment. So I guess my question to you is how far does your ethical objectivism go? Does it apply to things like female circumcision? That there's Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a good way to put it and I, and I think that there is uh, you know, it, it would be completely naive of me to think that there would be co- like widespread agreement given, given this, the variety of beliefs that exist, but I think that th- that way of saying it, that justice and harm uh, sort of are weighted more heavily that <clears throat> that there might be agreement that slavery was wrong or that honor killings are wrong because purity just doesn't go that far. Um, I'm happy with that. Or that the inequality or it, injustice of slavery just, is right. so out it's, of line with any possible uh, yeah, moral advantage. Right. Is what you're saying that there could be a case where justice is violated slightly but purity is violated so much more that it's not worth the violation? Well, that there would be disagreement about about so a, I think the case a female of, circumcision. Is a, do you think that there's an objective fact of the matter about whether that's permissible or not? Um, and male circumcision, for that matter, because it was just being right, outlawed right, in right. Germany. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, no, no. I don't. I don't think there's an objective fact of the matter. What about abortion? Uh, <laughs> I mean, is, if this is going to just be a list of whether I think that there's a right answer about a variety of moral beliefs, then then I'm not sure. I mean, I have to throw my hands up and say that. Well, no, I'm, it's sure. it, no I'm not asking this as a challenge to you. I, yeah. I think it's interesting because it seems like what you're saying is there's an objective 
fact of the matter about certain moral questions. More like there's, a, there's an objective fact of the matter about which moral principles are really the, the foundational ones that, that are at the heart of morality. Say, say a woman is beaten by her husband and she claims to love it. She says, no, in fact, this is what keeps our marriage going and I don't mind it and I actually deserve it sometimes. And, uh, you know, that's, that's hard because I, I say, well, no, I think that, that, in fact, nobody should be beaten that way. But then I also think, well, somebody's preferences should actually be respected. So, so there are those difficult questions, but that doesn't mean that I, that I don't think that uh, all things being equal, people should have the right to not be beaten. If they uh, want to be. If they don't want, yeah. Um, if, well, right, I, I think that people shouldn't be harmed and, and you know, it, it leads to questions about, well, does she really want that? Or has she just kind of been brainwashed by her husband? Right. So, I mean, people will say that about female circumcision, where um, a number of people who have defended the practice are uh, are women themselves. Right. Or you know, my own question that that to me isn't deeply an ethical question. It's it's more a question of, well, what are the origins of this desire? What are the origins of their defense? And you know, I think that what we can agree on is that people should not be harmed outside of their will. And the question of whether this is their will is sort of just the side question. Well, no, but it's, it's not necessarily a side question because how you determine what her will really is is itself an ethical issue, right? Do you determine it by uh, saying what you, what you think her will should be? It's true, but I don't uh, think that it's a, it's that sort of deep question. I mean, it's like somebody who wants to get their you know somebody who wants to get their face pierced place. all over the place. Is like, well, you know, they're harming themselves, but they really, really want it, and it doesn't seem like a serious enough violation. So I think we really need to dig deep and find out whether or not all things being equal, women are getting their sexual pleasure completely taken away from them for the rest of their lives, and is this... But we do have facts about that, right? We have certain facts about it, and there are certain kinds of female circumcision that... Are, that yeah, do, do re- right, that, that yeah, but then, right. yeah, and then there are other kinds that don't. So I agree that we need to learn all the facts. But I also think that once we learn all the facts, there could still be fundamental disagreement about whether the practice was permissible or not. And I'm just wondering if, and, and let's just say for the sake of argument, that's true. Yeah. And, and again, all the facts are agreed upon, and now we are just facing a a clash of of values, are you, are you going to still insist that there's a fact of the matter, maybe one that you don't know the answer to? I guess that what I, what I, what I would like to claim is that there is a fact of the matter about the, the principles that are, that are at the heart of morality, but that those principles are abstract enough that there might always be disagreement about specific instances. But is there a fact of the matter about to what degree we should weigh each of these principles yeah, that, when they come into conflict? Yeah, that, that things like fairness and harm uh, always get get more weight than the other ones. I don't even think the other ones are moral, moral quote-unquote moral foundations. Oh, so you want to say that those things should be disregarded entirely? Uh, you know, they, they can be values that they're, and cultural values, but but they once they come in conflict at all with those the true ethical foundations, then they should be completely disregarded. And then I got to ask this: You don't find it coincidental that as a Western liberal, you think that no, uh, you, the you, real 
it would be like thinking it coincidental that as, as somebody is a member of modern civilization, we're able to build skyscrapers. It's not coincidental. It's a, an accretion of wisdom. But you could also argue that it's like somebody saying uh, in Australia that it's just an objective fact that, uh, what's that stuff, uh, Vegemite is really good. Um, and that anyone who doesn't appreciate Vegemite is, uh, is, is an idiot. You know, it would be sort of coincidental if, if somebody in one culture just said, yes, but the, uh, you know, there's a true foundation. It, it, to say that it's coincidental undermines everything you were saying about aesthetics and beer, for instance, that, uh, that actually taking the time to learn everything you can about various beers makes your opinion valuable in a way that is more right. valuable than the opinion of somebody else. But there are beer experts who might disagree about which of are, are the best beers, and then there I would say, no, there's no objective fact of the matter. Well, to me, all of that, all of that really indicates is that there are sort of abstract criteria, that, the broad criteria that beer experts can agree upon that are important, but that in specific instances of this beer versus the other beer, they might actually come to disagree. So maybe I can end by saying the way I feel about ethics is clearly just the way you feel about the Big Lebowski. It makes me wonder to what extent the disagreement between uh, an, an, an objectivist like you and a pluralist or relativist like me, how much substance there is to that, to that right. disagreement. I mean, we might be using different terms for the same for, for, the, for the same fundamental view uh, or not and we just disagree and he's right and he's wrong by the I'm way right. Pulp Fiction right. is slightly better than The Big Lebowski no let's see it's not <laughs> <laughs> Pulp Fiction is almost as good as <laughs> for more information about this episode including show notes and links and to listen to other episodes please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com who are you? Just a very bad wizard.